Okay. Did you clap? I didn't even hear it. I think we were dead yeah, on. Clapped. Yeah, Damn. I clapped. We were getting good. <clears throat> Man, it's only taken 68 <laughs> podcasts <laughs> to learn how to clap. Yeah. All right, ready? Practice makes perfect. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Uh, this week, we are continuing our uh, American Space Program theme back from two weeks ago when we did... Um, first man and this week we are going to do uh phil kaufman's 1983 the right stuff welcome peter welcome oh hey before we go any further peter you got any beamons <laughs> yeah there's you an got- un- yeah i know not exactly a common gum these days is it <laughs> no although have you ever had beamons no but i imagine it's probably terrible when we were in high school it was re marketed probably based on the success of this film yep um and uh, i remember like i saw it and i was so excited and i bought a pack and it tasted like ben gay it's really weird like it's hmm. not what you think gum tastes like that didn't stop me from chewing it but no. <laughs> um probably was good it probably was good for your constitution <laughs> or my constipation <laughs> <laughs> that too that's probably um, why. That's probably why Chuck Yeager was chewing it. <laughs> All those long hours in the jet. Um, so this is um, this is the film adaptation of Tom Wolfe's 1979 book. Um, that, in contrast to First Man, which really is about Gemini and Apollo through the eyes of a uh, you know sad and. Um, introverted neil armstrong this is a really kind of uproarious um humorous humorous exciting uh dramatic swaggering um, i would say yes sweeping tale of really the dawn of the space age really beginning with uh rocket powered planes most notably the x1 and chuck yeager breaking the sound barrier all the way through the very, very end of Project Mercury. Right. And it's kind of told, it has a sort of a sweeping overview, but it's told mostly, or it centers on two men, Chuck Yeager and Gordo Cooper, who um, who was, Gordo Cooper was one of the Mercury 7 astronauts, the last one to fly. And and I think, well, I think John Glenn too. To some extent. A lot of the movie is about Glenn. I mean, the 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 Gordo Cooper character, he you know him and Jaeger bookend the movie a little bit more, whereas the center of the movie is more about John Glenn. But even some of Glenn, except for the scenes about his wife, it's more a sort of Glenn from an outside viewpoint than the, than really about Glenn because the, they they sort of they show um, Gordo Cooper kind of moving around with his wife and what the viewpoint, his viewpoint is like a lot. Whereas Glenn is just sort of this perfect, um, sort of Deadly a perfect do right. Yes. And, and that's the way he's seen sort of, you know, from the eyes of the other astro- astronauts as well, to a certain extent. Um, but you know, in contrast to First Man, this movie—I tell you—you know—in preparation for the podcast, I rewatched this, and it made me think a lot about First Man. And boy, is is the right stuff a better film? And that's that's not taking anything away from First Man, but boy, is this a better film? And I got to say, too, this is a hell of a lot more fun to watch. I mean, yeah, this is more fun to watch. This is a really but... winning film. 
Yeah, I probably don't like it as much as you do. I think I like Apollo 13 the best out of the sort of the astronaut themed movies, which I think we're going to do next. But um, I, I, I like it, but it's sort of, um, I don't know, it has a little bit of a superficial is too strong a word it the the tree it's breezy it's almost almost a little too breezy in some ways to me um i mean this is a minor complaint because it's a good it's a well, good movie I mean, it's, it's a fun. little hard to call a three and a half hour movie breezy i mean just it's the tone of the film you're right it's a, it's a rather long epic but it doesn't <laughs> feel too long watching it because it's easy to take it's sort of deftly made um it's lightly done i think the only thing they don't do super well are some of the flying scenes um, because they didn't really have the effects to shoot um, good scenes out the window. So whenever they're shooting out the window, it looks a little goofy to me. But um, the rest of the time, it's pretty well done. And they're, the way they intercut historical footage and live footage is really good. It's really seamless when they do that. Yeah, and there's only a little... Most of the historical footages are the launches. And the, but yeah, a, J- a lot JFK. of it, a lot of it yeah. they did themselves. And, you know, this is all... This is 100% practical effects. Oh, yeah. I mean, they didn't have... They did not have computer effects then. It was pre you know, computer graphics of any meaning. I mean, oh, this is way, this way, is, way, way, This is asteroids graphics. and space invaders time. Yeah, I think it was, is it Gary Gutierrez who did the effects there? They made a ton of models for this and, uh, they, they did, did a nice you know, job. They did really good job. And the, I think actually the flying scenes look really good. I mean, everything <clears throat> except for out the window. Those are like the only- when they show them looking forward. When they show the 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 first person view out the out the the uh, out of the cockpit, it I tends to look. It looks a little goofy. You know, they I sort of know. show these spinning. It, it looks very abstract. Well, but I think that the, when you see it spinning, it's supposed to be that they are blacking, grappling. Out. Yeah, grappling with staying conscious. And you, yeah. I mean, you only really see that. You see that a little tiny bit when Jaeger breaks the sound barrier, and then you see it. When Jaeger has his mishap in the X1A years later. But, like, for example, when Jaeger flies the 104, you don't really see that. You see sort of the, you know, he's on the edge of space in that scene. But we'll get to that. Yeah. No, it's the only thing I think doesn't look great. But all the other effects look great. I mean, it's... Yeah, it, it, it does look great. It feels good. You know, like... You know, like the way that they do Edwards Air Force Base, which then is Muroc Airfield back in the day. But, you know, the way that they make it feel like they're riding horses, they're out in the high desert, they're going to Panchos. It's a dump. It's a it's a dump, but it's it's also supposed to be where, you know, where they really want to be. Like it's yep. a mecca for them and a dump for anyone else. Yep. Um, oh, it's a and dump. The way they that, just don't care. Yeah. And even the way that the you know, early NASA is is sort of shown as it's a little bit. It's not that it's 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 cut rate or low budget. It's like you know they're just throwing it. They're throwing everything together. It's like cement block houses and you know metal gantries and stuff like that. Like they're just making it up as they go. Yeah, the, and the little bits of like the inside of the capsule look great, and just all all the effects. The outside, the costuming is is perfect. 
the yeah, yeah they're, they're, the, the Mercury spacesuits look really good. Um, and uh, this is, you know, this, and I think, you know, you got to give all the credit to Phil Kaufman. I mean, this yeah. was probably a very daunting film to make. I mean, the, the book's the size of a telephone book. Um, and, you know, the book covers everything in excruciating detail. And he really kind of managed to capture the feel of the book, you know, the sort of like Tom Wolfe, new journalism style, you know, a way of telling a story like that. Right. Uh, I think that he, they were able to really do. And he captures some of the humor. You know, there's, there are humorous scenes like when they're holding in an enema and running around and then... Right, or when they're all jerking off yeah, in the bathroom, and, and singing the Air Force, you know, Also, the, the, one of the theme. best, one of the best uh, jokes is also when Alan Shepard's delayed, his launch is delayed so long and he has, he drank a bunch of coffee and he has to pee <laughs> and he's stuck up in the capsule and they're afraid to tell him to go. And while he's like sitting there suffering, they show all these like guys pouring coffee and a guy like spraying, <laughs> Going to the bathroom. spraying a hose out by the rocket. <laughs> like they show all these seats just to sort of highlight the, the fact that he has to urinate so badly. And it's, it's really funny. It's really well, it, it doesn't, uh, it comes off, uh, it, he pulls it off really well and it's very funny and there's a lot of sort of like male sort of camaraderie mixed in with competitiveness it's all sort of one and the same right he he captures the the, the book is about that a lot it's about the the culture among the the test pilot the fighter jocks become test pilots become astronauts right, and they all want to be on top like one of my one of my favorite lines in the movie that sort of illustrates the whole thing is how you know, they're doing the science and the engineering and the flying, but the competition is really what's on their mind. And, um, you know, we see Jaeger break Mach 1. Later on, we see Scott Crossfield uh, break Mach 2 in the D558 Phase 2. And then when Jaeger goes up in the X1A, and he goes, Mach 2.1. Sorry, Scotty. Like, right away, he's got to have the dig over the radio at the right. other guy in flight, you know, because he knows that other guy is listening. Because right. he is right, and then of course he's going for Mach three immediately because because he knows that people only care about whole numbers, right? And 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 there's a you know there's also I think a, a woven into the the movie is the real danger of this. Like it's not all fun and games, and you know the movie begins like the very opening scene of the movie uh, over the narration is is somebody essentially dying right uh, there's a bunch of which, funeral scenes in the beginning of the movie just to set the tone there's funeral right. scenes in the desert and the sort of desolate landscape with this very dour um undertaker or, right. or priest I, th I think or he's actually supposed to be death yeah yeah like he's, he he's literally like death embodied because he appears throughout the movie at right. various times like he's often seen in the background at cape kennedy like how would he have gotten there what would he be doing but whenever there's danger or a question that the astronaut might die he's often shown in the background like you know like he's just waiting yeah when like right when when shepherd's you know getting on the lift to go up to the top of the rocket he's standing there looking mm -hmm. at him so yeah he, he right he's he's death and that's why they made him so gaunt looking and dressed in black yeah um you know and, and in a way that for example first man played up the melodrama of the wives you know they do some of that here and and the most of the astronauts are shown 
having wives and what they go through, it doesn't linger on it so much. It's just sort of meant to convey to you that it's not just the astronauts who have a hard time of things. It's their families as well. Although... Barbara Hershey, who plays Glennis Yeager, seems to have sort of the most acceptance of everything. And other than the scene where Yeager breaks the sound barrier for the first time, she's not really shown to be particularly stressed or worried about his career. No, I think she's a little more of a free spirit, maybe, than than some of the others. And and she came through World War II. You know, yeah. these are she's supposed to be a little older than the other the other women, right? Um. So we can't talk about this movie without talking about the unbelievable cast. Yeah. Right? So Sam Shepard is essentially the core of this film as Chuck Yeager, right? And then and then over the course of three hours and change, we get Dennis Quaid, Scott Glenn, right. Ed Harris, All these guys Fred are Ward, early in their careers. Yeah. Lance Heinrichsen, yeah. Veronica Cartwright, Lambert from Alien, by the way. Right. Um, Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum are sort of the ubiquitous NASA uh, junior-level <laughs> right. administrators. That's Hershey. Harry Shearer from The Simpsons. Yeah. And all the narration sounds like Kent Brockman in the whole movie. <laughs> um, Donald Moffat um, plays Lyndon Johnson. Um yeah, Who you've seen in everybody this? in this movie. Like, oh, every yeah. actor you've seen. Did you recognize who that was playing Annie Glenn? Um, I can't remember, because I wasn't... That's, I was speeding through at this time. That's Mary Jo Deschanel, who I believe is Zoe Deschanel's mother. Okay. So, she's in there, too. But, I mean... You've seen yeah, everybody I mean, in, in other movies, basically. And they, yeah, they just do a great job. Um, did you recognize Nurse Merch, by the way? No. That's Jane Dornacker, um, who very, very famously, when we were in uh, high school, uh, died live on the air on WNBC in New York City. Uh, she after she left acting, she was doing the traffic and weather helicopter, and oh. she crashed. Uh, she crashed live on the air. Hmm. Crazy, crazy. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I mean, everyone is in this, and it's just it's just a million faces that you know either you knew then already, like I had seen some of these people before, and then you went on to see them in a million other movies over the years. Uh, but I, I would say I would agree with you that really Shepard and uh, Dennis Quaid are kind of the two that we follow the most with with with. Um, Ed Harris is John Glenn, a close second. Yeah, those two sort of form a viewpoint for the movie. They, they form a lens through which to sort of observe the action or observe the tone of the of the film and the passage of time in the film. I mean, it goes from <clears throat> 1947 up to... 63. 63, right, which yeah. is a pretty, pretty long time span. Um, the beginning cruises by faster and then around 1960 to 63 it slows down a little bit um but because there's more events happening right in the beginning they're sort of jumping from year to year as the landmark flights come and go yeah they go by about six years or seven years at a time in the beginning because they show chuck yeager's x1 flight where he breaks quote the sound barrier uh for the first time in 1947 in, in the rocket plane and then they skip ahead to 1953 when the 
guys who are going to become um, the Mercury astronauts and who also compete to become the Mercury astronauts show up at Edwards, um, that class. And, and Jaeger at that point is sort of the elder statesman there. Um, and, uh, and then it follows them. It skips ahead then to when they have been at Edwards for several years and they're going to apply to be, uh, to join NASA at its inception. And, you know, whatever happens in the movie, it always comes back to Jaeger, you know, right. the, the Russians orbit Sputnik comes back to Jaeger. The Russians right. orbit Gagarin comes back to Jaeger. You know, the Russians, you know, like Grissom bails out of his capsule comes back to Jaeger. Like it always comes back to Jaeger because he's kind of the lens or he's sort of the avatar through which we see everything, right? We get to see his excitement at the development of all this aviation in the beginning and then his sort of frustration at perhaps being passed over or left behind. Like perhaps, you know, the movie portrays him as, you know, the giant among them all, but he is denied, you know, being an astronaut to even to the point where the scene at the end of the movie, where he has the crash in the one Oh four, you know, he is literally shown to be just on the edge of space, but with a few wispy clouds separate him from the stars. Like, like it's not in the cards for Jaeger to go into space. Right. You know, he's in this, by the way. Did you see yeah, Jaeger? Yeah, he it? has. He has a little tiny um, cameo. Cameo. But you now know, he's still alive. He's ninety-five years old. Yeah. Well, you know, it's pretty what, good. What they didn't really show as well. What they didn't stress that they in the book they really went to you know Tom Wolf went to lengths to stress how Jaeger really was the first in this type of swaggering um kind of test pilot pushing the edge um and and how they really all come from Jaeger they all emulate Jaeger and they all looked up to him tremendously and i think there's a little bit of that once when they get to um they get to Edwards in the beginning and they show him you know, they sort of look at him as like he's a, a rock star, you know, but right. I, and, and he sort of sets the tone that they all mimic. Exactly. So, you know, I have a book sort of talks about that. I think how he, even though he, his star waned in some sense when the, during, especially, you know, during the sixties and seventies when astronauts were these colossal um, figures in American life, uh, you know, they were, uh, reflections of Nash of, of nationalism and of um, idealism and of American accomplishment uh, in the cold war technologically on the global stage. Uh, they really reflected true heroism, I think to people. Um, and, and Jaeger was, was left out of that. And yet they all looked at, they all got their style from Jaeger and sort of he, was their inspiration and their origination to sort of become to, to head down that direction. That's the, from the test pilot to the astronaut, you know, and, and in the book, you know, Wolf likens them to sort of like single combat, right? Like in the, like in the biblical times where, you know, each army would pick one person to represent them and they would fight to the death. You know, they right. were single combat warriors going, right. You know, toe to toe with the Russians, right? Gladiators. You know, and and the movie. You know, one of the I think the best scenes in the movie that people often don't talk about because it's understated. And this is not an understated movie. 
but there is that great scene uh, when they are at the barbecue in, in, in Texas, right before the movie ends, where the reporter asks Cooper, who's the best pilot he ever saw? And, you know, like they're giving him this great opening to say, it's me. And then he basically realizes that he's talking about Jaeger and not himself. And he doesn't bring himself to say Jaeger's name. And his wife realizes that he's tipped his hat and he's not talking about himself when he's really talking about who the best pilot was. And then he catches himself because he realizes he's in front of the press and he says himself and everybody laughs. But it's, it's implicit to the audience that that is his tip of the cap to Jaeger, that he really recognizes sort of Jaeger's primacy in the whole thing. Right. Right. And, and Jaeger, you know, he, he does, he stays at Edwards, you know, he, he stays out in the desert and he becomes marginalized and almost his flight in the F one Oh four, where he's trying to get the height record is almost like almost sad. He's trying to, he's sort of chasing the dragon when the, the glory is left. Right, you know, demon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, and they even acknowledge that in the film. You know, right. like when when uh, Jack Ridley, I think the Ridley character says to him, "Nobody cares about those kind of records anymore." Yeah. Right, and you know, you can see Ayers disturbed by that. Right. Well, because the thing that he is great at, and the thing that he's devoted his life to, is is no longer prized. Right, and and even though. He's re- he's a pretty um, he's not really a glory hound Jaeger not not really but on the other hand I think he likes being top dog at least among his peers maybe not so much the public as much as the the astronauts do but he doesn't want to be he still wants to be the center of attention among pilots and at this point the astronauts are international megastars that women are throwing themselves at them all constantly. Everybody, you know, they're on the cereal boxes. They're everywhere. Right. And he just, I mean, he can't help, but sort of feel left out. Right. And he's, and he's out there in the desert all alone. He's still in the same dump, you know, where they turn on the tap and, and rust, the brown water, Yeah, rust comes, <laughs> you know, sputtering out of the tap. Did you ever read Jaeger's autobiography? It came out on the heels of uh, this movie. Yeah, it was I called we Jaeger, I think, wasn't yeah. it? I think I did read it, yeah. It's pretty funny. I mean, ago. I've forgotten a lot of it. One of the things I really remember is that he grew up, he talks about how he grew up in West Virginia in a town that was so, like, backwater that yeah. when he joined the army, like... No one could understand what he was saying, right? Because like his like his hillbilly accent was so thick that like he had to find somebody who was slightly less of a hillbilly to interpret for him. Like his first year in the military, he'd say stuff, and people would be like, "Well, what did he say? I couldn't understand," you know. But he was yeah. actually speaking English, and they just couldn't even follow him. Yeah. Um, I think you got to give a shout out too to Bill Conti's score. Yeah, uh, the score in this is just tremendous uh i mean like when i think of this movie like in a weird sort of way it's like a giant flying music video because there's so many of these scenes you know jaeger breaking the sound barrier cooper's flight glenn's flight i mean there's a little bit of classical music thrown in for a few scenes but not much it's mostly conti's score um yeah and he takes he was- pieces of classical you know like when he shows the russians he plays like he puts some 
he makes this sound no he makes a mashup of it's tchaikovsky's violin concerto and he sort of mashes that together with patriotic sounding music so he, right. he'll use sort of like riffs or themes out of the out of the a famous you know piece and then mush it together but if you look at like his you know like the the films that he scored i mean he really knows how to sort of rally the audience and help them to soar with the characters right rocky rocky two <laughs> rocky three karate kid gotcha yeah. right um what else did he do um everybody was a pro I mean, he's, in this yeah. movie that's the bottom line and and they i think they they kind of all were on the same page like you get a sense that they all shared kaufman's vision and were working with him like nothing is discordant like all the pieces of this movie fit together very very well yeah i mean erwin winkler winkler was a producer who's basically like you know produced just a every big movie you know and he's still wasn't working he behind rocky rocky goodfellas like uh, just t- like t- yeah, raging rocky, bull. rocky two, raging bull yeah i mean and going back to the 60s yeah and he directed some stuff too but he uh he did a ton you know he did he was producing he produced a ton of stuff ton of stuff yeah to to good effect um you know, it's interesting if you read the Mercury astronauts take on both Tom Wolfe's book and, and the movie, um, with with rare exception, they did not like this movie. Like they did not like they were portrayed they did not like the way they were portrayed. They felt it made them look a little ridiculous. Like Glenn especially really had a hard time with the way that he was portrayed in the movie. Um, and he thought that it made them out to be jokes. The only one who was kind of okay with his portrayal was Shepard. And Shepard liked the sort of steely, flinty way that they did him. Hmm. And, you know, by all accounts, Shepard was an incredibly difficult person. Um, but Shepard, like, publicly was okay with it. Um, and they all, by the way, they all, all the actors met the astronauts that they played, except Scott Glenn, who didn't want to meet Shepard. He said, no, I'll just do it my own way from what I read. Hmm. Interesting. Which is interesting that Shepard's the one who liked the way the film came out. Yeah. And, and um, Shepard's pretty, is sort of the, the toughest, most, uh, most frat boy out of them all. Well, Shepard was, you know, a. a Shepard was a notoriously difficult guy. You know, he was grounded um, after his Mercury flight because he had Meniere's disease. Um, and so they, you know, sort of like a booby prize. They, you know, him and Deke Slayton ran the astronaut office and he was just notorious for being, you know, short-tempered, terse, abrasive, to the point that his, his secretary, and I can't remember his secretary's name, she... There were two photos of of Shepard that were his official portraits, one where he was smiling and one where he was almost scowling. (laughs) And his secretary got in the habit of switching his portrait in his office so that when people came to see him, they knew which Shepard they would get. That's funny. Like, was he in a good mood today or was he in a bad mood? And if, if, if she had the picture where he was scowling, people just turned around and walked out and skipped the meeting because it wasn't worth going in. (laughs) 
So one was called Smile and Al, and the other was called the Icy Commander. So that was like, I mean, Shepard was a tough, tough guy. By all accounts, Shepard mellowed after he walked on the moon on Apollo 14. He, then he kind of felt like he, you know, he achieved his goals. Right. But sort of between his Mercury flight and his his Apollo flight, uh, very, very difficult guy. He, st- I think, I think Shepard. I think Shepard might be the only. I think he was one of the few Mercury astronauts who stayed married. Uh, Glenn stayed Glenn married, and Shepard was... stayed married. But I think most of them divorced. Hmm. By the way, um, Ed Harris is a dead ringer for John Glenn. I mean, a lot of them look like the people they're playing. I know, but man, does Ed Harris look like? John I know Glenn. the young John Glenn. He looks just like like he's got the same coloration, and then he got a tan and looks the same. And yeah, his, and his head is sort of the same shape. Yeah. And he's sort of at the same level of balding. You know, like yeah, they really yeah. that they, they really did a good job. Exactly. You know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, they really. Um, he's very reminiscent. Man, did this movie, I think this movie affected me more than it affected you, but when we were, like, in junior high and high school, like, man, did this movie affect me. Like, like these were guys that I wanted to be. I mean, shit, these are guys I still want to be. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's such, like, a cool, cool appealing sort of vision for, like, a young boy, you know? I, I even got an A2 jacket, sort of like a brown, you know, pilot-type leather jacket. I was so, like, enamored of sort of the look and the style of this movie. Yeah. Um, God knows where that thing is anymore. Uh, but, boy, it's, uh, you know, I hadn't seen this movie in maybe a decade or more uh, in preparation for this podcast. And I was surprised both by how much I remembered and how much I forgot. Like, I remembered a lot of the scenes, but a lot of the sort of tone I had forgotten. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I watched most of it again today, actually. And, uh, yeah, it was it was good to see it again, actually. Um I'm just. Have you, you you said you read the book too? Yeah, I read the book back I mean, a long time ago. I only read it once, but um, yeah, the book was really good. I, I actually like the book better than the movie. Um, I mean, it's hard to make a comparison. They're whenever people They're really say that. different. I think you know Kaufman knew Tom Wolf. That's how he got this. Uh, Kaufman knew Tom Wolf personally. And they were friends, and I think that they actually had Wolf write the first draft of the screenplay, and they all hated it, um, <laughs> ironically. And then Kaufman told Wolf, like, ah, I'm just going to redo it. And I think Wolf didn't care. I think Wolf was like, yeah, do whatever you need to do. And in a weird sort of way, it sounds like Wolf was harder pressed to write his version of the screenplay, whereas Kaufman, I think, I think he wrote the thing very quickly. Like, he wrote the entire screenplay in a week or two. Hmm. Uh, and he was able to sort of capture the feel or sort of the highlight of the tone of the book. Um, it's interesting how virtually nothing is shown from the Russian perspective. You know, just a few scenes. You know, you see a little bit of stock footage. You know, they have that guy who's supposed to be Sergei Korolev, you know, the the Russian version of Von Braun. Uh, but other than that, you really see nothing of the Russians. It's all from our perspective. It's yeah, it's totally from our perspective. The only time they show Russians is really from the from news coverage, more or less. Um, yeah, there's almost none. It's really about the story of American astronauts entirely. Yeah, I, you know, I would probably put this just a hair 
just a hair above Apollo 13. Because I love Apollo 13. Like, I mean, I, I think I said to you offline, like, many years ago, if I was a little down the dumps or whatever, I would put on Apollo 13 because it would cheer me up and it would be kind of inspirational. But I think just in some ways, this is a better movie. Like, it's a little more sweeping. Um, and it, it just, it covers so much stuff. Whereas Apollo 13 is a, even though it's a big story, it's a smaller story than this. It's just, it's one flight shown in, you know, tremendous detail. Whereas this is sort of this sweeping arc of history. You know, you get this pie slice of the 20th century. That's, that's just super interesting to me. And I love, I absolutely love the ending. Like I think, you know, they skip some of the astronauts flights. Like you really only see Shepard. Glenn, Grissom, and uh, Cooper. You don't see uh, Wally Shiraz flight at all, and you don't see um, uh, who Carpenter. You don't see Carpenter's flight at all. They just dropped, and you really don't see Cooper's flight except no. for the takeoff, which really just serves as a way for them to do the closing narration. But it's still a great, it's still a great bit, and they they give you that final narration done by the Jack Ridley character and there's sort of like a wink to Gordon Cooper about being just for a minute the best pilot. You know, maybe just for that day or two he gets to eclipse uh, Jaeger. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, like definitely a big winner. I remember when I saw this in the theater like uh, my dad and I just like floated out of the theater. We were like so pumped from this (laughs) movie. Whereas Apollo 13... You know, you're you're happy that they lived. I don't know. That Whereas was this, heroic, though, this, because it's so. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no I mean, doubt. But this, gonna, but, but this, they sort Apollo of like 13, they did but... the thing. They got it done. Whereas Apollo 13, you know, it ends with you know the 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 uh, the Jim Lovell character played by Hanks talking about how their mission was a successful failure, and then it ends with that sort of awkward narration where he sort of looks at the camera and, and essentially says, "Well, when are we going back?" Um, and that's a little bit of a different tone to give the audience as they walk out. Yeah. But on the you other know, hand, they live. I mean, it's the peak moment of heroism in a way. I mean, it really was the peak moment of heroism of the space program, even though I think the point of that making that movie was to tell a tale that I think people didn't really know that much about. But, I mean, we, we'll, we're we going to do a podcast on Paul 13. Yeah, and I don't think. get me wrong. I love... Apollo 13. Yeah, we're gonna like, do I've that probably next. seen Apollo 13 as many times as I've seen this. I could practically like recite Apollo 13. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's it's no slight at Apollo 13 to say that I think I like this a little bit more because I really like this movie. You know, it's funny watching it. I kind of like I was kind of like wondering, like, man, I should watch this more often. Like, it's really that good. Um, but it's, I was thinking too when I was watching this how hard it is to do a really serious movie about the space program, you know? And and you could argue that in some ways maybe this isn't that serious because they do play a little fast and loose with dates and uh, the timeline and they kind of move people around. Like, you know, they put people at Edwards who really weren't at Edwards and they just sort of, they jump around a little bit and maybe this movie lacks some of Apollo 13's, you know, technical and minute-to-minute accuracy, but it makes up for it in the way that it, it feels right. Yeah. You know, like this movie makes it look like Jaeger got into the X-1 and broke the sound barrier the first time he ever did it, when in fact he had done many flights in the X-1 
before he ever attempted to break the sound barrier. Right, of and course. They make, they make it look like he just kind of like, you know, jumped into that F-104 and roared off into the sky, when right. in fact he had done many test flights in the 104 and it was all part of a program. So that's what I mean. Like this movie plays a little fast and loose with some of that stuff, but for the purposes of storytelling, it gets away with it. Right. And, um, right. It, it, uh, it, and the thing it gets, you know, I, I said this, but it really, it gets the tone, it gets the humor, right. You know, it, it's not, it was clever to, to keep the humor, some of the humor of the book in there. Right. Because it's like we're competing with Archie and Jughead, they say during the during the, the breath test. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, you know, they're 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 such characters. I mean they they come from this they have this crazy little culture that they evolved, they speciated out on their own real little weird island of the test of the swaggering pilot, you know, where they come from. And uh it was a weird frat house crazy conceit that they had um and uh and that's all and that's really what the book's about i mean and with the background of of kind of nationalism and uh and the um the cold war you know the intensity of the cold war especially at that point when it was really the the peak of the cold war and um those two things are what the what the book's about and and the movie it's not as sharply intended i think as the book is but it keeps a lot of the elements and the tone that the book has even if it's not quite as you know not quite as sharply focused on on those literary thematic aspects that the book has but but um but it's well done because yeah, it, it's it keeps the movie it is more concerned with feel than fact right well, the book's really about the about the culture, you know. I mean, the, that's really what the book's about. So it's about the feel of the culture, um, and and the book even talks about how the culture has spilled over. You know, like when right. you're flying on a commercial jet, the pilot is going to talk to you in a sort of Jaeger esque way because that's what they've been, you know, sort of acculturated to do. Right. Um. Apparently, the book. So I I have read in the past that. You know, Wolf was interested in the astronauts, and he wanted to write a book about the entire space program. And then it took him years just to write the Mercury part, and he, he sort of stopped there. Right. But apparently, I didn't know this, but the book is actually um, an expanded version of a four-part article series he wrote for Rolling Stone called Port called Post Orbital Remorse that does not appear to be online. I'd be sort of curious to read that because in that he is apparently talking extensively about Apollo and I think from that he went back and started from the beginning but it would be interesting to to read post orbital remorse and see how it how it compares to the book hmm. you know I remember when um, when the space shuttle first launched and landed that was certainly before I'd heard of Tom Wolf and before I'd read the right stuff I remember when the space shuttle landed seeing wolf on tv saying like this was a return to the real type of astronauts that you have to have they don't just fly it up like a rocket they land it like an airplane and i remember he was very very big on the idea that the shuttle 
you know, required actual flying. And I remember just, you know, we were little when that happened. I remember sort of not really grasping what he was talking about. And years later, when I read the right stuff and saw it, I remembered that interview that he did uh, and sort of was able to sort of, I guess, see what he was talking about. But it was interesting that he viewed the space shuttle through a very different lens than I think most people did. Right. And, um, right. I mean, and the fact that, you know, the space shuttle was, was, was in many ways a massive disappointment in general, but I guess, you know, he picked up on the one cool thing about it. It's true. I mean, it took a lot of skill to to get down from, if you want to look at it that way. And I'd say there's more than one cool thing to the space shuttle, but you know, you could see how, how it sort of pushed his button. You know, I read, I read a fair bit of, uh, Tom Wolf. I haven't read everything he's done, but I probably read half of his books. Yeah, me too. The right, I'd say right stuff and bonfire. The vanities are kind of the, the two, the two ones that really stand out in my mind with, with a man in full sort of like a notch below. And a lot of the others just sort of melted away for me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Although they did um, he's, not I guess make, he, he's I guess he passed away, Tom Wolf, a couple of years ago. Yeah, they did not make a good movie out of Bonfire of the Vanities. Did you ever you know the story of uh, of his white suit? Why he always wore the white suit? Yeah, but I forgot what it was. So wasn't he, he being a jerk about it? Like there was yeah, something yeah, he was no, trying to do exactly. it to be a jerk because it annoyed so he, people. Yeah, he, he bought it to wear in the summer. And then he wore it off season. I guess you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day or whatever. Right. And he discovered that it really pissed people off. Right. So he kept doing it. Yeah. So like he he wore it every day practically. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty good. I know. It's pretty good. I miss uh, I miss Tom Wolf. So John Um, Glenn died in in just not even two years ago in December 2016 at 95. Yeah, <clears throat> Sean Glenn and uh, Shepard died about twenty years ago. And Shepard had lymphoma, I believe. And um, uh, Gus Grissom obviously well, died. Gus Grissom in the obviously Apollo died in fire. Apollo One. Gordo Cooper died in two thousand and four, um, and Slayton died in nineteen ninety three. Poor Slayton, he had a rough run. We'll, we were getting a little bit off topic well, here, but Sherrod Slayton died in two thousand seven. Yeah. yeah, Slayton never flew in Mercury because he got a fib. Right. And then they made him head of the astronaut office. He never flew in Gemini. And then he literally got aboard the very, very rock bottom last flight of the Apollo program as he flew the Apollo Soyuz mission, which yeah. is just basically a PR thing. Right. Um, but that was basically like they, you know, they threw him a bone and he finally got to fly. Um, at 51 man he hung in there a long time deke slayton jeez yeah but you know he he had a probably a better career for not flying on mercury than he would have i I guarantee you he would have given it all up to fly on mercury (laughs) probably yeah that's the way those guys (laughs) were exactly oh yeah yeah because you know those were you know those were some of the ultimate test flights yep um i think i've read i read cooper's biography i read Glenn's, and these are their autobiographies. Cooper's, Glenn's. Um, I've, I've read biographies or autobiographies, I think, of all the Mercury astronauts. 
Uh, I mean, the astronauts have been written about like to the point of exhaustion. But uh, you know who had the worst book, believe it or not, was John Glenn. Like John Glenn mm-hmm. wrote an autobiography that was just terrible. And the reason I say that is like he was so he was trying so Guarded. hard to be squeaky clean and not say a bad word about anybody and never right. tell an off-color story about himself that he sanitized his his own life story so much that it became to use a term that you would you would like pablum right you know and and you know like it's just hard to believe that a guy with his experiences in government Right in the air, f- oh, in, sorry, in the marine, as an astronaut, life. and I think he flew in Korea, didn't he? he fly flew in, in Korea. World War, he, he flew in World no, War Two and, and Korea. And Korea, yeah, and he it, was like an so, ace. Yeah, I mean, he's flying in Mig Alley. Uh, yeah, he, he and and he, he, his he book. Six, I remember being. He won I was six just, DFCs and eighteen air medals. I was just crushed when I read his autobiography. It was it was like it was like vanilla ice cream. Yeah, that was like that was you know that guy. He really could have told a great story. The book about Shepard is really good. It's called Light This Candle, and it's pretty thick. That's a phone book also, and that's sort of about sort of he was a sort of a dark complex guy. Cooper's uh, and Carpenter's books are more sort of about about sort of how like their careers faltered. Uh, after mm-hmm. a while, and they didn't really achieve a lot of what they wanted to. And Shira and Slayton's books are, they're okay. They're, they're nothing great. I, they're kind of de rigueur, so I read them, but mm-hmm. uh, they're not great. Uh, and obviously, there's no Grissom book. You know, they think, by the way, I guess, you know, one thing that this movie did come under probably fair criticism for is a lot of people felt that this movie trashed Grissom. And right. sort of followed Wolf's lead, and sort of portrayed him as the you know as they say in the movie the squirming hatch blower. Yeah, um, and there's panic? not a lot of there's not a lot of evidence that he actually uh, blew the hatch you know in a moment of panic. And they you know the movie goes out of its way to say that it couldn't have happened by accident, but it may in fact have happened by accident. Yeah, I don't know. If- anybody's ever going to know. No, they can't because um, remember they found Liberty Bell 7 in the bottom of the ocean about yeah. 20 years ago? Yeah. They didn't find the hatch. Uh, and they looked, they really looked for the hatch because they really, really, really wanted to answer the question. Grissom's brother was the part of the expedition that found the uh, the spacecraft and they really wanted to find the hatch. Right. And they never did. So without the hatch, you can't answer the question. But, you know, the there's different explanations. One is that um, he may have been – this is – you know, there's lots of different explanations. But one of the ones that I always felt was kind of plausible is that some people think that he may have been trying to keep the emergency knife in the capsule as a souvenir. And, like, the way you would have to position yourself and posture to – to pull the emergency knife, you could potentially hit the the hatch mechanism to to blow the bolts. And some people think that that would kind of go with his personality. You know, he was bringing up those dimes for souvenirs. And then when they found the capsule in the bottom of the Atlantic, it was full of dimes, believe it or not. Right. Um, but some people think that he might have been trying to take souvenirs for himself. And then there's some of the other astronauts said, no, 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 it just blew. He wasn't trying to do anything. But there's there's about a million theories as to exactly what happened with that hatch. But I always kind of 
Uh, you know, that one about him taking a souvenir, that did sort of ring true for a guy who was bringing up dimes. Yeah, I mean, the most... I mean, it, the most plausible thing is that some, whether on purpose or not, somehow his arm somehow had it happen because, you know, why would it blow when he was down? If it was going to blow accidentally, how come it didn't blow while he was like at 2000 feet or something? Yeah. Right. You know, like right. when I mean, it was hotter. Something must have, right. Something must have happened. You know, it was amazing. I remember when they found Liberty Bell 7. I was really excited by that. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how, how good it looks. Like, I remember seeing even the photos of it at the bottom of the ocean. Like, it looked pretty good after sitting there for, you know, 30 years. And then they restored it. Uh, it's at the Kansas Cosmosphere. And holy cow, does it look good. I mean, even when they brought it up from the bottom of the ocean, it it really did not show a ton of wear. Like, it looked great. Yeah, it um, just has some like some like corals or shit that grew on the top of it, you know. Yeah, but not much. I know because it, it was like thirty-seven years or whatever it was, uh, it was down there. Yeah, but now it looks great. Yeah, uh, I, I've never I've been to a lot of air and space museums, but I've never been to the the Kansas Cosmosphere. Um. Oh, man. I don't know. Good movie. Like, I mean, you can see how much sort of emotion and feeling this movie engenders. Yep. Um, so I guess next week, Apollo 13. Correct. I mean, because, I mean, these are kind of the big, 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 you know, movies that are trying or tried to do the space program in detail. I guess these, these, these movies and From the Earth to the Moon are probably the most serious attempts to tell the story um, of the American space program. Right. There's some good Russian movies. You know, we, we can, it might be, you know, maybe not for a podcast, but uh, uh, Salyut 7 is a sort of highly dramatized uh, version of the Salyut 7 story, which is available on Amazon for streaming. And there's um, there's a movie that was made a couple of years ago about Gagarin that was really good, and I can't remember the title oh, of it. I haven't seen that. But, uh, yeah, the Russian space program is super interesting, too. But anyway. All right. <sighs> So All right, should we wrap there? Yep. Next time, All right, Apollo so 13. Next time, Apollo 13. All, All right. right. Talk to you later. All right, everybody. Uh, Peter and I will save a stick of Beeman's for you. <laughs> you might not want to, you know, actually chew it, but... Right, but just sort of have it sort of visible in your shirt pocket so people can see it and think that you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> and don't tell them it tastes like Ben Gay. They won't know what it is, don't worry. <laughs> ben Gay or the Beeman's? Both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Alrighty, man. Alrighty, man.